Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a really great guest today, uh, Robert Siegel. He's a professor at Stanford University in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology. Um, he's going to be a, a co-author here in the virus book I'm putting together. Very well known. Uh, he's been around for a long time. He's uh, part of the program in human biology, uh, the Center for African Studies, uh, the Woods Institute for the Environment. Uh, he's been a course director of the infectious disease component of the preclinical curriculum. Uh, he's taught many classes um, and so extensive background. So, Robert, welcome and thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to see you. Yeah, tell me, what got you interested years ago in infectious diseases? Well, whenever we tell stories about our past, they're always sort of just so stories that we make up to sort of make our lives make sense. But I, I think one of the main things that got me interested is that when I was in uh, an undergraduate and when I was a graduate student, they were very, very exciting times for molecular biology and for virology. Uh, the very first DNA sequences were coming out. And of course, because they were trying to sequence small things, the first sequence of any biological entity were sequences of viruses. Uh, so there was a, we were learning about viruses at this you know, phenomenal pace. And that certainly got me excited. So definitely the times. Uh, I do, you know, I've heard lots of lectures on viruses. I do remember uh, lectures by Kathy Dana when I was in graduate school and uh, talking about SV40 uh, and her work in that area. And that got me excited. Uh, but interestingly enough, I think my career sort of turned on a conversation that I had with an administrator. I was interested, I had the opportunity to teach a class in, uh, in the opportunity arose in, in 1981. And so I actually wrote up two different class proposals. One was on molecular evolution and the other was on uh, human virology. And so I went up to the administrator who was basically, you know, uh, didn't necessarily know anything about science. And I put them on the table and she said, viruses. And, uh, and so I, I submitted the one on viruses and I've been teaching the same class ever since. Oh, wow. And uh, in addition to teaching, what's your kind of research about, if any? Well, I've had a very remarkable career in that I've been able to focus primarily on teaching. So, so I've done a number of uh, research projects along the way. Uh, currently, I'm working with a number of students on some uh, reviews of the literature regarding uh, aspects of coronavirus. For instance, there's a drug that's an IL-6 inhibitor. And so we've reviewed the literature and we're about to uh, get a publication on that. Uh, so mostly my research has been personal. It's been focused on uh, how to be the most efficient effective communicator I can be. So you're always doing experiments when you teach and trying to learn more. Oh, excellent. Okay. Well, very good. Well, now um, for the questions. So the first one, uh, do you think viruses are alive or contingently alive when they enter a cell and you know, why or why not? 
Okay, so this is a very interesting question that I spend quite a bit of my uh, the beginning of my course talking about, and I'll begin by saying that uh, that I think it's a false dichotomy of saying our virus is alive or our virus is not alive, because basically I I will. Uh, posit that viruses are sort of on the hazy border between what's living and what's not living. And I often teach with uh, with poetry. So I this is a stanza from a poem I wrote called The Secret Life of Viruses. And the quote goes, a virus has a structure giving it properties that lie between, inanimate and truly living, less than cell, but more than gene. And the other thing I use when I, when I answer this question is I actually say that many people when they answer this question, don't define what living is. And so in order to get a really effective answer to this question, you need to sort of agree what, what you're talking about. And so I actually propose a number of different definitions. So I would say this question is interesting both from a scientific standpoint, because it allows us to sort of understand, you know, what the essential features of living are. It's essential from a pedagogic standpoint because it's useful for me to teach about the nature of viruses. And of course, it's interesting from this linguistic standpoint I was just talking about, namely, uh, how do we define things like viruses? How do we define things like life? So let me uh, pose three different definitions of what's living. The first definition is a definition that came in the late or sort of mid 1800s by two researchers, Sleden and Schwann, and they proposed that all living things are comprised of cells. And for the biological world, that, that appears to be true for bacteria, for plants, for humans, for you know, everything we can think of. But viruses are not comprised of cells. They're smaller than cells. They actually uh, have to enter into cells and take over in order to make more virus particles. So by that first definition, if we agree on that, viruses are not alive. The second definition, we might say that uh, we could define life by looking at the vital properties that all the properties that living things have in common. And these would be things like replication, being able to produce more of themselves. And of course, viruses are really, really good at that. Uh, but it also includes things like eating and excreting and sensing the environment and homeostasis and movement. And basically, viruses don't do any of those things. They don't metabolize energy. They don't have any mechanism of synthesizing protein or other molecules. And so by that second definition, they fail miserably. So they don't do any of the things that living things do except to replicate. And they do that really, really well. So the third definition actually focuses in on this whole idea of reproduction or replication. And so we can ask, how is it that, that living things actually replicate? And for this, it's useful to sort of look at the paradigm of Francis Crick. And he came up with an idea called the central dogma of biology. Now, you know it's got to be important when it's called the central dogma of biology. And basically, right. uh, what the central dogma does is describes the flow of biological information. And it turns out in all living things, biological information that's passed on to the next generation is stored in the form of DNA. And that information is then actually read out in sort of a, a Xerox copy in the form of messenger RNA. And that messenger RNA is used to make protein. And of course, in order to be able to pass the information on, that uh, the DNA has to be able to replicate. So all living things have their information in the form of DNA, and they all carry out this process of DNA replication and then expression through mRNA and then into protein. So we can ask, how do viruses comply with that? Well, it turns out that 
some viruses actually do those sorts of things. And they would be things like pox viruses or herpes viruses, but the vast majority of viruses that infect humans, and I focus on viruses that infect humans, the vast majority of viruses that infect humans, such as coronavirus or flu or, or Ebola or HIV, violate the central dogma because they either have their genetic information in the form of RNA or uh, actually, so the majority of them have the genetic information in the form of RNA, but they also violate the central dogma because none of them have both DNA and RNA. They either have DNA or RNA, but not both. So by the third definition, they also fail miserably. But in that sense, it's useful to look at viruses because what we see is that viruses are essentially the exceptions that prove the rule. So in every case, even though they do it in an unusual way, viruses still need to replicate they still need to copy their genetic information. They still need to produce messenger RNA in order to make viral proteins. And they still need to be able to express that messenger RNA in the form of protein using the host cells, ribosomes, using the host cells machinery. They're essentially the, the exceptions that prove the rule of the central dogma of biology. So by all three definitions, they sort of fail miserably. The, the last sort of bonus definition would be that uh, is it possible to define the minimum genome that it would take to carry out all the functions that we associate with life? And that thought experiment has been done by a number of people, and it's actually been carried out by at least one researcher. And so what, what they did was they actually took the simplest bacteria, which is a bacteria known as Mycoplasma genitalium, and they eliminated all the genes that were not essential. And it turns out when they do that, it turns out that there's only about 250 to 300 genes that are necessary to create an autonomously living bacteria. And so uh, and this, this work was run by Craig Venter. And so that basically is, defines sort of the minimal genome. And again, there are some viruses that have big genomes, but they don't actually encode the right genes to be able to, to have autonomous life. So again, we come back to this notion that viruses are essentially at the hazy border between what's living and what's not living. Gotcha. If there's a late, well, there seems to be a latency period, you know, between which someone's infected and which they, uh, they get sick, they show pathogenicity. Why do you think that is? And why is that variable under different conditions or different viruses? Okay, great question. I, just as my teaching role, I want to actually disambiguate the term latency because we use that term in three different ways in virology. And uh, one way that we use it is the period of time between when a virus enters a cell and when it starts producing virus particles that, that are infectious. And so that's one, one form. Another form is the time between when you're exposed to a virus and when you develop symptoms. And and that, that's often called latency, but it's more correctly referred to as the incubation period. And I think that's what you're referring to here. And yes. the third way that, that the word latency is used is in conjunction with certain viruses that can actually sort of go to sleep inside the cells. And so the, the viruses that are really good at that are the herpes viruses. And they almost all go into the state where they can just basically become quiescent and just wait for the right time to uh, replicate. So not all viruses can do that, but certain viruses like uh, the herpes viruses are really good. So let's get back to the question of incubation period. So why do viruses have an incubation period and why is it different between different viruses? Well, the main right. reason why viruses have an incubation period is that they immediately start replicating. So there's a first, first there's a lag time between when they enter the cell and when they start producing viruses. And then there's a lag time between when there's only a few viruses and when there's lots and lots of viruses. So generally speaking, they're doing a lot of damage from the very beginning, but it's on a microscopic scale. 
So we don't experience any symptoms until the amount of damage or the effect of the virus is large enough that it sort of enters our you know, body consciousness. And so a lot of viruses can replicate for a while before we become aware that we're ill. And there's a second reason why there's a lag, and that is that many of the symptoms that we experience, for instance, when we have the flu, are actually responses to our immune system. And our immune system takes a while before it notices that we're being infected. So when there's only a few viruses there, the immune system's not really geared up high, but when there's lots of viral replication, the immune system is on high uh, in high gear and we start feeling the effects of some of these, these mediators. Uh, now, there's a second part to that question, and that is that uh, why are some viruses different than others? And what we're going to see over and over again is that viruses really are selected for their ability to replicate and produce more virus particles. And it turns out that viruses have found all different ways of making a living, of carrying out that replication process that are successful. And so just like people have lots of different jobs, there's lots of different niches for viruses to be able to replicate and produce more virus particles. So some of them replicate very fast because they can outrun the immune system. Other ones replicate slowly so they can be sort of stealth and be below the radar screen of the immune system. And that's also an effective strategy. So, so over and over again, I think it's important to sort of look at the individual virus and try to understand what strategy is that virus utilizing in order to produce more virus particles. Well, how could there be uh, any strategy if there's no life, no agency, no self-reference or any of that? Sure. So the question is, how can something so stupid be so smart? Basically, the answer to that is that these have molecular intelligence. They have evolutionary intelligence. So it's like you have this little computer program and the computer program is endowed with the ability to replicate, but it doesn't do it perfectly every time. And so if some of the programs actually become better at replicating, they'll take over. And pretty soon you won't see the original program at all. You'll see the, uh, the modified. And then from there, uh, they can modify further. And as they make each of these modifications and get better and better, it looks like they have a strategy. But what they're really doing is you're just selecting for those variants that are most effective at carrying out that mandate of replication. And the mandate is that basically if things can replicate well, they'll come to predominate and we'll see them. If they can't replicate well, they'll disappear from the population. So there, there is no sort of will or intention. You're just selecting out those things that are best at this little game, this little. So you, you can think about viruses as essentially little biological computer program. You know, when they're inside a cell, they seem to be very capable of taking over cellular machinery and co-opting it for their own uses. Um, do you think that they're able to make a cell send out the specialized extracellular vesicles to communicate with other cells and see the infection status of those cells or maybe do quorum sensing and kind of coordinate activity? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So I don't know of any example where that would be true. And so my, my inclination would be to say they don't do that. But again, the answer to almost everything is if a virus acquired that ability and it facilitated its ability to replicate, then you would, you would see it. So, so it's, it's, not, it's not ruled out by being a virus. Uh, what's, what's more pertinent and what's more similar to what you're talking about is the response of the immune system. The immune system definitely has the ability to have cells recognize that they're infected 
that they're sick and send out signals to other cells to try to protect themselves. So the cell is smart, the human cell and the human body is smart, but the virus has the, has the advantage of being able to replicate fast and, and change really fast. So, so this is basically a kind of uh, uh, warfare in which the body is being very deliberate about trying to get rid of the virus. And the virus is just selecting for those variants that, that happen to be able to outrun the body's defenses. If a cell is intelligent and it can, you know, fight against the virus, you know, communicate that it's in distress, coordinate with the immune system. You know, if a, if a bacteria can take pieces of a virus and let's say, you know, express viral spike, spike proteins itself and propose another bacteria, then why is it not the same phenomena when a virus co-ops a cellular, you know, cellular machinery and uh, changes it to do its bidding. Well, first of all, I want to talk about the word intelligence. So both of them have biological or evolutionary intelligence. Okay, so they're selected. We get confused because we also use the word intelligent for thought. Uh, and so neither one of them has the, the power of thought, but they both have this amazing sort of like biological intelligence. The, the difference between a virus and the, uh, and the cell is that the cell is actually the strategy that it has taken on to have, be able to replicate is one that involves being able to send the environment and react to it. Uh, uh, viruses only can react in basically an evolutionary sense by being selected. So, so they don't actually have the, the same sorts of abilities. And cells, again, don't take up virus components willfully. They take them up by accident. And if it, if it happens to be to their advantage, then, uh, then they'll be selected for. And, and in fact, there, kind of, there was a remarkable biologist by the name of Lynn Margolis, and Lynn Margolis came up with a number of very controversial hypotheses, and many of them have turned out to be true. And one of them was that creatures from very distant biological origins exchange genetic information rarely, but when they do, sometimes that can lead to jumps in evolution. So in fact, if we look at viruses, we see that they can pick up genes from their host. And the same, in the same way that hosts can pick up genes from the viruses, what's really going on here is that if it's to the benefit, if it improves the replication of those, the virus or the bacteria, then that will be selected for. If I look at three major types of uh, activity, I won't call it behavioral connectivity, you know, you have lytic activity, virus comes in, replicates, blows the cell open, you know, latency, they'll go in there, like you said, herpes viruses and hang out and evade the immune system and stay for months or years or lifetimes. And then, you know, in certain cases, HIV endogenizing into DNA and, you know, literally becoming a part of the cell. What do you think governs these three abilities? And especially when a, a latent virus, then, you know, according to host conditions, I guess, I would guess it has to be monitoring the host conditions or the host all of a sudden becomes able to attack the virus. I don't know. Like how would how would you have these three? Well, so this, uh, again, it's a very interesting question because viruses do such incredible things and have this molecular intelligence. So first of all, the the main difference is that the is the difference between different groups of viruses that have chose that have been selected for different strategies. Okay, so for instance, the herpes viruses is a family of viruses that has that uses that strategy to great advantage. Certain other viruses, again, are kind of uh, hit and run viruses, and they their strategy is to replicate fast. They get by and they're very successful without using that sort of more subtle strategy. Uh, what and their, their advantage and disadvantage of both. So for instance, herpes viruses are very large viruses. So they 
so they have to carry a lot along a lot of extra genes to be able to carry out this, you know, interesting strategy. In general, again, you're looking for whether they're successful, not just at producing more virus particles, but being able to transmit to other hosts. So for instance, herpes viruses, as you mentioned, you could be infected with chickenpox, you know, at the age of six months, and you could carry that virus along for the next 90 years. And maybe uh, the virus could come out and infect somebody else who'd never been exposed to chickenpox before. So, so that strategy works to maintain herpes viruses in the population. So you might say that, well, why doesn't every single virus do that? And, and again, what we see is that viruses use different strategies that are successful. So every virus is not trying to do everything that every other viruses do. They'd have to carry around a big genome and that would actually select against them. Uh, now, the, the third group that you mentioned are viruses that actually can uh, stick their genetic information into our genes. And it's important to realize at that point that there's some viruses that like HIV that can stick their viruses into our own genetic material. And retroviruses are the only group of human viruses that have to do that in order to replicate. So there's a few other viruses that occasionally do that, but none other none that actually have to do that to replicate. And again, that's a, that's the strategy that they've basically adopted that's successful. It, it is important to point out that there's a big difference between viruses that stick their genome in the host cell, like HIV, and viruses that end up with their genome in the human genome uh, to be passed on because those viruses, unlike HIV, have to be able to infect either eggs or sperm or germline cells in order to be passed on. So, so HIV, even though it infects our, gets into the genome of our individual cells, isn't passed on. So we do know that over long periods of evolutionary history, a number of viruses, most especially retroviruses, have managed to stick their genome into the human genome. And in fact, there's probably more DNA allocated or that that's basically has its evolutionary origin as retrovirus than what we might call human genes. So we're more retrovirus in a way than we are human. And again, that strategy has worked for those to amplify up those, uh, those particular genomes. One issue about that is the fact that the human genome has so much DNA in it that if you think about a computer program that's really, really large and it has some garbage in it, it's usually easier to leave the garbage in, like, you know, what people used to program in a program called Fortran, and there were all these like dead end uh, subroutines, because to, to actually go through a million line program and actually figure out what's garbage is so much work that people just left them in there. And to a certain extent, that's what's happening with these retroviral genomes is they, they're just, they're remnants. And, uh, and in humans, none of those remnants seems to be able to uh, effectively replicate and produce virus particles. Well, that's probably good. I don't know if we'd want uh, you know, an endogenized retrovirus to suddenly be activated and produce new virions and you know, do God knows what. That wouldn't that, be too good. Yes, that, that's very good. We do know that occasionally happens in other organisms. So mice have an endogenous virus called mouse memory tumor virus that actually in some individuals can come out and actually start replicating and give rise to cancer. And there was a hypothesis a while back that maybe since human breast cancer is so common that that maybe it, there's also a human mammary tumor virus and people look very, very hard and there's just no evidence that we have the comparable virus. And the difference 
may be that we are very long-lived species. And so if we had something that actually affected our ability to have kids or survive as children, uh, that uh, it would be selected against. So again, it's all about replication and selection. Well, since viruses can be extremely pathogenic and can kill nearly all of a population, you know, I'm thinking of a, there's like a rabbit population in Australia where like 99.9% died, but the small remnant then proliferated and they were, you know, immune to the virus, whatever one they had. Um, it seems like viruses can have a heavy hand in evolution and selection and maybe even lead to speciation. I mean, any thoughts on this uh, from your side? Uh, yes. I love the example of rabbit myxoma virus, which is a pox virus that Basically, this rabbit virus was actually introduced for the express purpose of trying to eradicate the the also introduced rabbits in Australia because the rabbits would replicate like rabbits and there'd be lots and lots of them and they would eat so much of the food, they would actually impact the local uh, fauna. So for instance, they would eat up all the food that maybe they, uh, the, the kangaroos might eat or some of the other anim- uh, indigenous animals. So uh, so this virus was actually introduced for the express purpose of trying to eradicate the rabbit population. So this was a virus that that is in its r- normal rabbit host, it's not nearly as lethal as it is in the European rabbits uh, that were introduced into uh, Australia. And what happened was quite remarkable. And that is that virtually every rabbit disappeared and there were no more rabbits. It seemed like there were no more rabbits in Australia, but over time rabbits began to appear. And now the rabbits and the virus are in this sort of dynamic equilibrium that some people have called a predator prey relationship. So as the there's fewer and fewer rabbits, the virus can't replicate. And so really virulent really nasty viruses are selected against because if you kill everything in your little local population, you don't get passed on. Whereas if you're a li- you are in a population where you have uh, some variants that are a little bit milder that allow the rabbit to replicate, then those are more successful. And when those variants start to arise, there starts to be more and more rabbits. Was well, there's more and more rabbits, that means that now the more virulent rabbits, the ones that can replicate faster and more aggressively, are now selected for. So you have this sort of change in virulence over time in the virus to allow the rabbit population to increase, and then it will decrease. So it's very much like uh, like a, a larger predator, like a lion that keeps an antelope population in check. Uh, these are s- the smallest predators that are keeping their rabbit population in check. Well, with endogenized viruses, though, like in humans, I guess they comprise 8% or more of, of all our genes. And supposedly they're, they're what allow for uh, placental mammals. So, I mean, do you think they also, uh, you know, besides just culling and nearly killing everyone, they, they, they push creatures to evolve in certain ways they otherwise might not? Well, so there's, there's a couple of parts of that question. First of all, uh, viruses, the purpose of viruses is not to cull. The purpose of viruses is, is their, their evolutionary intelligence is to produce more virus particles. So some viruses do that really, really well without actually having any clinical effects at all. So there's a widespread virus called TTV, virus, Torquetenu virus. And, and that virus is found in many, many, many people. And we have yet to find any kind of clinical disease associated with it. So it's remarkably successful, even though it doesn't actually seem to damage the host in ways that are that are obvious. They don't necessarily, they're not, they're not selected for being extreme, they're selected for their ability to be effective replicators. Uh, now the question is, 
what about things like uh, the ability to create the placenta? Well, it turns out that just like the virus is selected for variants that can help it by picking up host genes, the host you know, has all these retroviral genes. And so if some of them actually confer an, an advantage, then they'll be selected for over time. And so there's a couple of uh, examples of that. Uh, for mammals, it appears that the ability of viruses to fuse cells together was actually uh, was co-opted by mammals to create the placenta, which in includes basically cells fused together. So, uh, and another example is that some people feel that some of these endogenous retroviruses may have facilitated human evolution by a, uh, a remnant uh, enzyme called uh, salivary amylase, which allows bread to taste really good. Uh, and so that actually evolved in, in fairly recent times, uh, along with the, um, the cultivation and, uh, of, of farming, the rise of cultivation. Okay. So, so um, yeah, we, we will pick up, if we have the opportunity to find a, you know, one of those retroviral, endogenous retrovirus or other retrovirus uh, or other viral genes, those will be selected for because they will give their host an advantage. Well, in terms of immunity, what role do you think the, you know, our virome or a bacteriophagome plays? You know, and I'm thinking about cholera. You know, it requires, I guess, a, you know, a piece of phage genetic material to make it pathogenic to people. So that kind of contributes to its success, maybe a replication, you know, the bacteria itself. Do you think that viruses play a role in our immune system? So again, I'll, I'll kind of cut that into several parts. Well, first of all, uh, one can make an argument that viruses actually gave rise to our immune system because if you look at viruses, they have two phases of existence. They have an inert phase outside the cell where they really don't move or, or metabolize or do anything like that. And then they have a dynamic phase when once they enter the cell, basically their genetic machinery starts taking over every aspect of this, the cell's behavior. If you look at the immune system, it's also divided into two. Uh, we have the, the branch of the immune system called the humoral immune system, and that basically produces antibodies that inactivate extracellular or inert phase viruses. And then we have the uh, cell-mediated immunity or T-cell immunity that is able to detect virally infected cells or dynamic phase virus that, and, and kill those cells. Uh, we don't have a good way of right now of eliminating the virus from those cells. But what we do is we sacrifice those cells in order to prevent those cells from making more virus that can be passed on to other cells. So in that sense, the, the viruses have very much affected our immune system, which is helpful in all sorts of ways, particularly, you know, for, again, long-lived creatures that have to uh, deal with lots of different things. We can't respond to the environment by evolving really fast. So we have to have, you know, adaptive uh, defenses. Now, cholera is a great example because, first of all, it, it underscores the need to uh, look at each virus separately. So in the case of bacterial viruses, some of them actually harm the bacteria and some of them help the bacteria. And you, again, you can look at this in, in the way that, that, you know, if the virus can benefit and the cell can also benefit, then, uh, then that will be selected for. So in the case of cholera, they, they're infected with a, uh, with a phage called CTX, uh, which stands for cholera toxin, and it encodes the thing that causes the massive diarrhea. From the bacterial standpoint, that's actually advantageous to the bacteria because it allows this the massive diarrhea might hurt the host, but it's more likely to spread to a new host because the, the bacteria is everywhere. So in that case, the virus actually benefits 
the bacteria. But in many other cases, in the vast majority of cases, uh, viruses actually hurt the bacteria. And in fact, as far back as the before 1920, a proposal was made that, that maybe we could use viruses to kill bacteria and stop bacterial infections uh, with this strategy that my enemy's enemy is my friend. So that actually was used uh, before the development of antibiotics. And now with the development of antibiotic resistance, people are actually looking back into this idea of using bacteriophage as a, as a kind of therapy for bacterial infections. And this is uh, advancing fairly rapidly for people with have, that have cystic fibrosis that have bacteria that are really kind of untreatable with the current antibiotics. Oh, that's excellent. I didn't know they were looking at phage for that. That's great. Yeah, there's a book called Salt in My Soul, and it's about an undergraduate uh, at Stanford who actually uh, had cystic fibrosis and uh, and her sort of battle with cystic fibrosis. She, she ultimately uh, died of a bacterial infection, but basically she was ultimately treated. It was it was too late when she was treated, but but her story has actually given rise to a renewed interest in, in this kind of uh, therapy for cystic fibrosis. If I'm infected with a virus and I label myself number one, and then I infect you and you're number two and you infect someone else and so on, by the time I get to person 100 and it's passage through 100 people, what would you expect and how would you expect the virus to change and how would you expect the 100th person to experience it versus the first? So again, you know, I, I tend to be a little rep, uh, repetitive because, you know, the answer to this question, again, is kind of, you know, evolution. So, uh, so for some viruses, the virus might become more virulent and for some viruses that might uh, and be successful and some viruses might become less virulent over time and so we have examples of of both of those sorts of strategies so generally speaking like the rabbit or like coronavirus, if we throw a lot of susceptible hosts and the virus can replicate a whole bunch of times, it's much more likely to be more and more vigorous in its replication because those variants would be selected for. So as long as there aren't any barriers to becoming more virulent, uh, the virus will tend to evolve virulence. On the other hand, uh, if there are barriers, there's sometimes you will evolve uh, and become more benign. And uh, again, herpes viruses are great examples or TTV because the majority of people that are infected with something like cytomegalovirus uh, have the virus in their body for the rest of their life, but they're, they're not really sick with the virus. Uh, so what will happen will often depend on human behavior and the number of susceptible hosts that are present. And by the way, uh, over time, if we look at something like smallpox, smallpox continued to be deadly even you know over centuries and in fact it's estimated that more people died of smallpox than any other virus during the the uh the 20th century, even though it was eradicated uh, in the 1970s. So, and then, wow. and so, so it didn't become more and more benign. Uh, whereas, you know, other viruses that are successful, like TTV, don't become more virulent. So, you have to look at each in the virus individually and try to sort of figure out what the success of that strategy is for that particular virus. In the current pandemic. Uh, for coronavirus, uh, what we would really, what would be great would be to limit the total number of replications, both in individuals and overall. Take the example of HIV. If we can squash down the replication of HIV in an individual, that individual is much less likely to develop resistance to antivirals. Whereas if we let the virus produce lots and lots of variants, lots and lots of bets on the table, it's much more likely that some of those variants will actually be resistant. And that's the other reason why often it's useful to treat 
things like tuberculosis, which is not a virus, but or something like HIV with multiple drugs, because that decreases the probability that you can develop antiviral resistance because you need multiple mutations in order to become resistant to multiple drugs at the same time. And that that ultimately should be the strategy that we're using for coronavirus. But right now, our armamentarium is pretty meager. Uh, we essentially only have one licensed drug that's an antiviral, and that's remdesivir. The other licensed drug is uh, dexamethasone, but that's not an antiviral. That's actually to minimize the impact of immune dysregulation. So, so it probably doesn't affect the viral evolution. Gotcha. If I have a choice to uh, get infected, no, yeah, it's a made-up scenario. But if I could choose if, if to get infected with a virus by someone that's like deathly ill from it, versus someone that doesn't really feel anything, what do you expect that I would experience? Would I be more sicker if I get infected from a a very sick person um, or from someone that's asymptomatic, you know, regardless of viral load. Um, and I know my genetics and my experience and my body is unique and all that, but any predilection and everything. Yeah. So again, I want to take it on sort of a case by case basis, but we can look at some examples. And that is so, so generally, if something is, is more aggressive, it's possible that we've now selected for a more aggressive variant of a particular virus. So if that were the case, it would be better to be infected with a more benign variant. And we know, like for smallpox, there were two main types of smallpox, which were called variola major and variola minor, and they differed greatly in their mortality rate, but they conferred, they, they were similar enough that they conferred cross resistance. So if you are infected with the mild strain of variola minor, what's also called the lastrum, uh, that that would confer resistance to variola major. And that actually resulted in a strategy to stop smallpox. And that is people would actually inoculate people with mild strains of smallpox in order to prevent them from getting more virulent strains of smallpox. And that was called variolation. And that's basically the precursor to vaccination. So that's one example. But if we take like, for instance, um, coronavirus, the likelihood is that the more serious infections are due to host factors. So uh, if you're young, you're less likely. So, so in that case, it wouldn't really matter which strain you got. Uh, what might matter is the number of virus particles you're infected with. So there's, there's growing evidence that if you get a bigger dose, if you get a bigger inoculum, you're more likely to be sicker because it takes longer for your immune system to gear up. So in that case, you may want to, it's, it's not necessarily how sick somebody is, uh, but it's how many virus particles they're producing. So for instance, uh, for coronavirus or for flu, we are often producing more virus particles before our immune system kicks in and before we're really sick. And so you'd be better off to be infected by somebody who's late in their, you know, who's, who's basically been infected with flu for, you know, 10 days than somebody who was infected with flu for just, you know, a day or two, who's now producing lots and lots of virus particles. And if we look at the example of HIV, the vast majority of people who are infected with HIV are infected with relatively asymptomatic individuals who are engaged in high-risk behaviors. The people who are really sick usually are not engaged in high-risk behaviors and they do not drive epidemic. So it's the people early in infection that tend to drive the, uh, the pandemic. Now, again, if we look at Ebola, it's a little bit different. What we've discovered in the last few years is that sicker people tend to have more virus particles. And so you wouldn't want to be infected you know, with somebody late in disease that was really sick. But again, for Ebola, it matters more which strain of Ebola it is than anything else, because some strains are, are more deadly than others. Okay, well, very good. Uh, last question. 
what do you see as the future of uh, virology, uh, our understanding of it, you know, over the next few years? And then, you know, what are some big goals that you have for maybe, you know, 20 plus years out? 20 years out. Okay. So, uh, so as, uh, as Yogi Bear says, uh, it's really difficult to make predictions, particularly about the future. Uh, but, um, I, you know, if we look at the, the, the pace at which people are learning about viruses and learning about biology, it's really remarkable. And I can say that when there's something like a pandemic, uh, that's actually spurs advances in all sorts of areas of science and especially in the, in the area of uh, virology. So if I were just sort of to uh, extrapolate logically from what's going on now, we are beginning to understand more and more about the detailed molecular, even atomic structure of some of the proteins that are made by viruses. We're understanding a lot more about different strategies, unique strategies that can be used for vaccination or for treatment. Uh, a huge breakthrough occurred a number of years ago when some treatments were developed for hepatitis C. This was a disease that was very difficult to treat for a long time, and now we have drugs that can actually cure this chronic infection. So again, as we look at more specialized treatments that are aimed directly at the viral proteins, we're getting better and better at that. I think one, one big gap in our knowledge uh, that people are looking at and that uh, coronavirus has, has sort of underscored, and that is that the relationship between the immune system and viruses. And so basically, we, we know a lot about the immune system, but the fact is, is that because these are two interacting systems, you know, the virus is rapidly evolving. Uh, the immune system is, uh, you know, is trying to adapt. So we are learning a lot more about how the immune system deals with viruses and, and how the immune system, for instance, changes as we get older. So a lot of what may be at risk for older individuals is, is a change in their immune system. So for instance, their, their T-cell immunity tends to be less vigorous as they get older, but their innate immune system that produces these cytokines seems to continue to be vigorous. Uh, so we're learning lots of different things about this sort of interaction between humans and viruses. Uh, the other thing that you sort of alluded to a bit earlier, and that is that using viral tricks to basically our own advantage. And viruses have produced many different kinds of therapeutics. They produce uh, tools for diagnosis and we can use them for things like vaccination and for gene therapy and things like that. So, uh, I mean, even CRISPR-Cas, which is actually part of the bacterial immune system against phage, uh, is now being utilized in all sorts of remarkable ways. Uh, that system probably would not have evolved if, you know, if, if bacteria didn't have to protect themselves against phage. So again, humans are clever and they're utilizing all these new tools. Also, we're discovering many, many more viruses. And it turns out there's more kind of genetic diversity among viruses than, than almost anywhere else in the biological world. If we look right now, there's only been 6,590 viral species that have been characterized it's likely that there are hundreds of thousands of different viruses that haven't been characterized. And as we characterize them, when we look at their genetic makeup, uh, we're gonna, first of all, learn a lot about biology, but we're also gonna get tools that we can use for all sorts of interesting things. So the future of, of the science of virology is, uh, is kind of unlimited and exciting. Well, excellent. Well, Robert, thank you for coming. And I appreciate you contributing to this. It's, uh, your answers are great, so thank you. 
It's such a pleasure and uh, the opportunity to talk about viruses, which I've made a whole career out of. And uh, I think it's an exciting field. And I congratulate you on this project because I think it's a great project and hopefully it will educate lots of people uh, about these, uh, these interesting, fascinating, dangerous entities called viruses. So thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.